Welcome to Two Gals in a Glass Half Full. We are two physical therapists just trying to live healthy most of the time and doing our best to see our glasses as half full. Some days that's a lot harder than others. We like to interview others more knowledgeable than us to teach us about things we do not know. But first, today, Jess, Dr. Jess, what do you have in your cup? Uh, today, it is a warm day here in Florida, and so I'm doing my best to stay hydrated with plenty of water. Yeah. Yeah, this is my second glass of the day, and I'm hoping to continue to drink more. Um, so, Dr. Bobby, <laughs> what's in your glass? Well, I, I don't even know. I'm just trying it. It's new. It's Steez. Steez. I don't even know how you say it, but it's some sort of organic green tea. So okay. trying it out, super fruit. It tastes very good. Um, I already got my water intake for the morning, so I can move on to something else. I like it. I like it. I like it. And today we have somebody special joining us. This is Erica Lipinski. She has some awesome um, training that she's gone through, which has made her much more knowledgeable than us as far as sleep and sleep apnea. So Erica, do you mind telling us a little bit about you? So I was a registered nurse for 17 years. I primarily did oncology was my love for as long as I could. And then I went on to get my bachelor's and then I got my master's and I'm a nurse practitioner and I happened to fall in. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I happened to fall into neurology and I kind of went in as a nurse practitioner with an open mind. There's a couple of things I knew I did not have any interest in. Um, but I happened upon this neurology job and it just sounded something really cool, you know, fascinating and things are always different in neurology. No two neurology patients are alike, even with the same diagnosis. So I do neurology, but I am lucky enough and grateful to work with a physician who not only did neurology, but sleep medicine as well. And he was, um, one of the first, he's, he's like number 900 or something. 35, 40 years ago, sleep medicine started. Um, so he's highly knowledgeable wow. about it. And um, he's also what we say, one of the club members for sleep apnea. So I learned <laughs> a ton working with him on sleep medicine. So, so that's, that's my love. Awesome. I love neurology. So. Very cool. I love it. And I love, I love that background of how you kind of your careers progress to the point where um, you're able to use some of that training and knowledge in the past to like progress you forward. And then now you're helping people in a different way. Um, and it ties perfectly into what we're talking about this month. So that is awesome. <laughs> now, um, Erica, what's in your class? I am just on the water train today. <laughs> it is, like you said, so warm in Florida. So just trying to stay hydrated and keep cold as we can. Awesome. 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 So as a um, nurse practitioner, right? And you see people that come in and they're complaining about different symptoms that might be going on. And they may have been referred to for sleep apnea, but maybe they weren't. And so maybe there's just different symptoms that are going on that they haven't yet figured out and haven't yet been diagnosed. Um, so one, can you tell us a little bit about what is sleep apnea? It's, it's a common phrase. And then maybe what would be be looking for in symptoms that you might um, yes. not know or might be related to sleep apnea? Yes. So there's actually two different types of sleep apnea that we see. One is called obstructive, which is the one that pretty much, especially people in medicine, we hear of OSA, and it's the most common one. However, there's also central sleep apnea. So obstructive sleep apnea happens when your airway closes while you're sleeping, and it can be for a multitude of different reasons. But what happens is 
as you're sleeping, you're, we, lose, we all lose muscle tone when you go to sleep. That's just what happens to us. And actually when we're in that deep sleep, you're actually paralyzed. So when the, you lose your muscle tone, your airway, muscular as well, you lose tone. So it tends, so people sleep apnea with obstructive, it'll just, it starts closing in on itself and enough to where it'll close and hence you get the apnea or you stop breathing episodes. So people with obstructive, it closes and then your brain's trying to tell you, okay, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And then that's when people go, that's when they wake themselves up. That's that gas where some people snort that loud snore all of a sudden, it, you know, it jars you awake. That's your body trying to open up your airway again your airway same thing happens you start getting back into a better sleep your muscle tone gets lower your airway closes same thing repetitive again and again central is a little bit different some people have what's called mixed apnea as well actually it's really three because some people have both but central is your brain is not telling your body to breathe as it should be so that's more related you know strictly with your brain and so we treat them a little bit differently so there's you know some people have central some people have obstructive some people have both Got it. Got it. Got it. And so, um, when we're, when we're talking about, uh, symptoms, like you don't know, cause you're sleeping, you don't quite realize that you're not mm. breathing and symptom wise. Cause we've talked about in some previous episodes, we've talked about chronic sleep deprivation and how we like many, many different symptoms might arise. Like we might just kind of, not only are you tired, but like emotional state is harder to regulate. Um, things will irritate you more than they typically would. Um, just overall, um, that higher level functioning and processing. Um, so lots, lots, you know, lots of different physiologic responses yeah. come out of chronic sleep deprivation. However, sleep apnea, when you're actually that breathing stops, um, might have different symptoms, right? Uh, so what, what, what some of those look like? So interestingly enough, we see a lot of people that come in and say, I, I can't sleep. I have insomnia. However, you say, okay, have you ever fallen asleep driving? Well, yeah. Okay, well, then that's not insomnia, right? And yeah, I fall asleep every time I turn on the TV. What they really mean by that is I can't fall asleep at night. And what they don't realize is that is something that your brain trains you for when you have untreated sleep apnea, especially after a period of years go by that you have untreated sleep apnea. So what happens is your brain gets trained to say, okay, I'm going to sleep now. Well, your brain goes, I don't want to go to sleep because I'm going to stop breathing. And I know my body's going to stop breathing. So your brain trains you to have this insomnia cool. of I can't fall asleep. But it's actually it's untreated sleep apnea can train your body for that. And so people that um, after years of going untreated, people that go on CPAP or BiPAP, the therapy that we use, a lot of them have this great overnight, like, oh my gosh, I slept fantastic. I feel amazing. 10 to 15% of our patients don't have that response. And it's because they have gone so many years of their brain being trained to try to stop it from sleeping that it takes much longer to have a better response time to it. But so that's something that we hear often is I can't fall asleep at night or when they do wake up in the night, my brain's racing and I, I just can't sleep because I have so much in my brain. It's actually oftentimes a trained response from your brain to stop you from sleeping, to stop those apnea episodes. Huh. So that's one oh, thing we hear. And then um, we have patients that will tell you a lot like, oh, well, I got up because I have to pee. I just, I get up three or four times because I have to pee. Well, actually, when you're truly, really sleeping, your body hardly makes any urine at all. So you're waking up because you have the apnea episodes. Now, once you're awake, your brain knows, oh, okay, you have some urine there. So yeah, I have to pee. But a lot of times 
you're waking up that many times because of the apnea. And then it's just when you wake up, yeah, I have a little bit of urine. So your brain's going to tell you that. And then, you know, we have problems obviously knowing that, right? We're adults. We know we have to go to the bathroom. We're trying to go do it. So that's something else that we hear a lot. Um, obviously snoring is something that, you know, we're all pretty familiar with as far as sleep apnea, people snore. I mean, snore, like you can hear it through doors closed, you know, and a lot of them, sometimes they wake themselves up snoring. Sometimes, you know, we hear them we're like, yeah, my wife sent me here because she can't stand sleeping next to me anymore. You know, we hear a lot of that. <laughs> so that's a common one. Um, daytime fatigue, obviously, if you're not sleeping well and you're not getting oxygenated well at night, you're going to be tired during the day. You know, people I have, I had one even young one in his thirties that it was like, I can't stay awake at work because he's not mm. sleeping. At night. So, you know, daytime fatigue obviously is a big one. Uh, with that waking up gasping for air feeling. Mm-hmm. Some people don't know they do it. Some people, again, their spouse or, you know, girlfriend will tell them like, yeah, they're waking up at night gasping for air. And again, when that airway closes, your body is trying to tell it, you know, and then so it wakes your brain up enough and you go, and then that's that that gasp or that loud snort that you'll hear people make when they have sleep apnea, and that's just your body trying to get it that airway back open again. Um, another one that we hear a lot actually is a sore throat, and people kind of don't tend to associate that with sleep apnea, but that goes back to the actual anatomy that people have. Um, they have a larger tongue or a smaller soft palate behind there where your airway actually, you know, is open. And so when they lay down, especially on their back, they start to almost swallow their tongue and then your uvula is back there. And almost Mm. you're like swallowing it because they have such a small space back there. And when that muscle tone decreases, that's what causes that in the morning, they wake up with sore throats. Huh. So that's interesting. Yep. Things I wouldn't have even thought about, like, right. and you know, symptom wise. Yeah. Another one is sweating. They wake up sweaty during the night and that is because the body's stress response. So your body is not breathing. Your oxygen levels are dropping your, you know, so your body starts secreting that cortisol because it's stressed out. And so they wake up sweaty and they don't mm-hmm. attribute it to sleep apnea. This is like, Oh, I was, you know, I had a bad dream or, you know, Oh, the fan wasn't on. You know, it's like, no, it's, it's your body's stress response to having those lower oxygen levels and not being able to breathe as well. And then this, you want me to tell you about the physical signs we look for? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so physical signs, um, people tend to have, um, more of an overbite. So a smaller jaw, and especially if you look at the side, people that their jaw sits inward, they tend to have it more so than you know, than other like larger jaws. Um, we see larger tongues because again, that blocks more of the airway in the back. Um, smaller soft palate area. So when you open your mouth and your doctor says, ah, we look at that area, you know, the opening. And if it's real tiny and, you know, some people we can't even see behind their tongue. There's, they, we don't see any opening at all. So obviously they're at an increased risk when they go to sleep and they're going to have their blocked airway. Um, and a lot of men, um, which was something I learned new, you'll see them grow goatees and we do a two finger rule. We call it. So if you go like this up to somebody's face and I can block the small lower aspect of their face, they tend to have, they, they tend to have sleep apnea more often. And the men tend to grow goatees to make them look like they have a more pronounced jaw than they really do. So when they have that smaller area down here, right. They like to put facial hair and things like that. Cause it makes them have that more manly square, you know, jaw or protruding jaw that men are, quote unquote, supposed to have, you know, so, so almost, you know, a lot of our men, you look, yep, 
especially when we wear masks nowadays, you know, so you take your face down, they take your mask down, and you put your fingers up and they've got the facial hair and all that. And it's like, it's, it's funny because it's something silly, but honestly, it really is a good rule of thumb. We tend to see it a lot. So, and That's those so are things that also, going back to the physical signs, things that are not, um, you know, we can't change our, we can't change our face anatomy in the back of our throat. Certainly there are actually some surgeries, but I mean, uh, you know, removing whole tissue from the back of your throat just to avoid some sleep apnea, you know, a CPAP, it's not always successful anyways, but those are things that we used to look for, you know, as a person heavy set, as a person obese, you know, that that's their main risk factor. But we know now it's not all about being obese. There's all these other anatomical changes that put somebody at risk and our physical actual symptoms of sleep apnea that we look for. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like after that, like it has a lot to do with like more anatomy and things, whereas we used to just think, oh, just exercise more or do this, you know, like lose right. weight, you know, you know, exactly. so it sounds like it's a lot more to it than just body size or yeah. habits. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of physicians use, that was their belief, you know, it's like, oh, well, you're thin, so you don't have sleep apnea or you're fat, just go lose 30 pounds, but it's, it's not that easy. It's, there's a lot else, you know, other things that, again, central apnea are things that that's your brain. That's you can lose 20 pounds all you want in your brain, you know? So, so it's a lot to look at besides just that. Absolutely. I think that's something that when we were in uh, physical therapy school, mm-hmm. I don't, we didn't really talk all that much about it. I mean, like we were aware of sleep studies and um, some, uh, you know, some of the warning signs to look for in case, like, you know, especially in our differential diagnosis classes where we're trying to like, um, be aware of like where to be able to refer patients if it's not musculoskeletal, uh, or, you know, like a neuromuscular issue. Uh, but I had, you know, a lot of this, I had, you know, no idea about, um, but I'll tell you, like, I, I, I know people like personally that are young, like in their thirties. And I know people that are in their sixties that don't fit the stereotype of like sleep apnea we think of. And I was like, really surprised when they're like, oh yeah, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. I'm like, what really? Huh, look at that. Um, and the CPAP, I mean, it, it's great. I mean, they're more rested every day. They feel better. Their physical health is better. Um, cause as we know, if you can't get adequate sleep, meaning that you're going through those stages of sleep that we talked about with Dr. Erica Kiernan, we got two Erica's on, on this one. <laughs> But if you're not going through those stages of sleep and you're not dropping into that restorative sleep for whatever reason it might be, then you're not going to actually recover from a day-to-day basis. Um, and sleep apnea is, is just one of those things that I, I know is much more prevalent than I realized. So we figured we'd, you know, try and help to share that knowledge with others that might be listening. Um, so Erica, what are, the, what are the ways that you diagnose this? Um, so we always have sleep studies, we try to do what's called a split night study. So a split night study where it sounds like it's two nights, it's actually one night and we send you in and they're going to watch you sleep. 
and they're going to hook up to all these electrodes and they're going to actually watch like your brain waves and they're, they're checking how long you're in REM sleep, how long your sleep latency is all kind of, it's, it's a whole long graph and all these, but so we try to send you in. Now, if we can get enough apneic episodes within two to four hours, they move on to what's um, called the titration study. So first is diagnostic, then we titrate. So then they're going to go ahead and put you on therapy, whether it be CPAP or BiPAP, which is the two different therapies we use. And then they're going to watch again, watch your oxygen levels, watch, you know, watch your brain waves, watching your REM sleep, all those things. And we're looking for obviously improvements and all those things. Mm-hmm. And then um, if they have a more mild um, sleep apnea, they might have to come for two nights. First night, they might be watching for more hours to get enough apneic episodes. And then they do the titration the next night. And then the other thing that we use are home studies, but we really try not to. I mean, sometimes we have, you know, extenuating circumstances where people really can't leave their homes, but they are largely underdiagnosed when you do a home study. Got it. That home study doesn't use the electrodes that are actually really watching your brain sleep and going on the REM sleep and things like that. All it's looking for is your oxygen levels. So we get a lot of false negatives or a lot of like underreporting. Like we might get somebody with an apnea, hypopnea index, which is what we call it, um, with like nine. Whereas then when they, if they titrate it somewhere, you know, actually in the hospitals, they're in a sleep center, they're really in the 30s or 40s. So hmm. they're very underdiagnosed. There's a lot of false negatives. So we try not to use home studies, but they are there. You know, if somebody really, you know, we, we understand, we try to work with people, but um, otherwise you're going to go into a sleep center you'll do a diagnostic portion and then you'll do a titration where they try to get you on the best treatment for you and actually, you know, look at your numbers and watch them. And I mean, I have people with um, an apnea hypopnea index, we call the AHI of in the seventies, meaning they have 70 apneic events in an hour. So, you know, so it's a lot. And then you put them on therapy, it goes down to 0.31, 1.2. I mean, it's, it's significant. It's amazing. And if you double your risk, if you treat your sleep apnea, you double, not your risk, but you double your chances of being alive on this day next year. It literally doubles your chances just by treating your sleep apnea, changing nothing else in your life. Mm -hmm. So. So you had mentioned that there's obstructive and then there's central. So there's two different types. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of two questions with that. Is the treatment for them the same? Um, and then also how do you differentiate, like when you are working with a patient, how do you differentiate like which one is causing, or if they have the mixed? So you don't treat them the same. Obstructive gets treated with what's called CPAP, the continuous pressure. So on CPAP, they're going to get a set amount of pressure and it provides just enough to prevent your airway from collapsing, which is what I talked about before. So CPAP, they put it on, we have different masks. There's full masks. There's what's called just nasal pillows they use. Some people need a chin strap because they always breathe with their mouth open. So that's the CPAP and that is treatment for an obstructive apnea. Now, some people with obstructive apnea, it's bad enough. They need to go on what's called BiPAP. BiPAP provides two different pressure levels. One for inspiratory, one for expiratory. And that's again, just trying to keep the airway open. But some people that have bad enough, like I said, Sometimes that CPAP, they have to have a high enough pressure setting. They get a lot of air in their belly. It's uncomfortable for them. Those are the people that really, it's time to go to BiPAP. Sometimes people that have been on CPAP for 10, 15 years, it's time to move on to BiPAP. So just because your setting's one thing when 
you're first diagnosed doesn't mean it's going to be that forever. Sometimes we have to send them back for titration studies. But so those are the different CPAP and BiPAP. Now people that have central and obstructive have to go on what's called ASV BiPAP. And that one gives, it's similar to both of them, but for those patients, they have to have, it delivers, it monitors their breathing differently. So CPAP and BiPAP, it's just whatever you set it up. ASV, it monitors their breathing as well. So not only do you put the settings, it also monitors if they have those central episodes where your brain just doesn't tell your body to breathe, it automatically gives extra pressure. And then it backs oh. off. As soon as they get back to their normal then breathing, it backs off and goes back to the set inspiratory and expiratory mm -hmm. pressure. Gotcha. Yeah. Have you noticed any tendencies for the central one? That one seems kind of interesting to me. Yes. So central um, is related to certain different medical conditions. So central, you're going to see more with patients with congestive heart failure. That's a big one that yeah. you'll tend to see more with central apnea. You're also going to see it with narcotic use and other kind of medications like people take a lot of Xanax, people take uh, you know heavy sleeping meds and along with other kind of like antidepressants and anything that can cause like respiratory depression, those people tend to have more central because again, it's working on their brain, right? They're taking all these meds, their brain it shuts down that respiratory drive and then they go to sleep, which makes it worse. So people like narcotic use and other different medications tend to, you tend to see more central as well. Yeah. I mean, that uh, totally makes sense. I just, yeah, it was funny. I, I think I've, I had only really paid attention to obstructive. So I wasn't that yeah. familiar with central. Um, I wasn't that familiar either. Cause you know, in the hospitals, you know, we see, we see OSA, obstructive sleep apnea all the right. time. Nobody yeah. really talks about central. And then no. Enough as becoming a provider. My dad's had sleep apnea for a long time. And I found out he has both. He has mixed. I had never, even being a provider, I had no idea. And he doesn't have any other risk factors. So sometimes it's, you know, what's called idiopathic, which we joke in medicine means we're idiots. We don't know, but you know, some <laughs> things just happen because they happen. So, right. you know, it can, but those, those two, you know, congestive heart failure and different heart diseases, and then all the, you know, medication use are your main two that you see more risk factors for the central apnea, but it, it can happen just, just because it happens. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, I think hopefully with, uh, some of the newer, like some of the newer, um, w devices for like the face and under the nose and whatnot, some of my patients in the past, I think everything was so big that it was yes. harder. And yes. as I've gone through my career, I've, I've seen people kind of talking better about their CPAP machines and it's like, yes. they don't complain about them as much. And it doesn't sound you know, super loud or, you know, they're smaller, they're easy mm -hmm. to travel with. Um, you can easily put them in like your little carry on bag that you bring on an airplane. Um, so that's awesome how that technology has improved and the diagnostics have improved because I can see where this would have been very underdiagnosed before. And it probably still is very underdiagnosed. Yeah. Oh, and you asked about how we differentiate between the two. That is strictly with a sleep study. Yeah. I that's can't look true. at some, you know, I, Sometimes people come back and like, no idea, because again, it's, you know, it's what your brain's doing when you're sleeping. So that is strictly mm -hmm. on um, sleep studies. But when we get our sleep studies back, it differentiates. It'll tell you how many obstructive episodes they had, how many central episodes they oh, had, cool. both okay. the diagnostic and the titration aspect. It tells us both. Those, so, and yeah. then one other way, one 
another treatment that we actually hear a lot. So I just want to touch on it in case anybody wonders about it. Because we get asked a lot, what about this Inspire device? I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, but our patients say it all the time. There's commercials on TV for yeah. it. And it looks fantastic. So just to touch on that real quick. So Inspire, they put electrodes like inside in your neck. So what it does is it fires those and you have these adverse episodes to open up your airway. And then it also pushes your tongue out get out of the way it is a very small group of patients that as of now it's a newer thing that it would actually work for successful treatment um so it looks like this great thing on tv and then you know of course they sell the world about it but really cpap and bipap is your best treatment option as of now so inspired devices um they only help if your and if your um airway closes anterior and posterior, meaning the front to the back, right? So you have to actually undergo an endoscopy under sedation where they watch you sleep and they watch your airway through the endoscopy because if your airway closes laterally from the sides, it doesn't work. If your airway closes from the front to the back and it's only been tested in certain BMIs, which are lower BMIs, which again, sometimes, you know, it is an obesity kind of partially an obesity risk factor. They've not tested them on certain um, BMIs. And then also what I refer to as the AHI, we look at the apnea hypopnea index, meaning how many times they have apneic episodes in that hour. Um, It's only been tested on fairly low AHIs. They don't, they have not tested it on people. Like I said, people are in the 60s, 70s, you know, even 30s and 40s, they haven't tested it on. So when people are wondering about Inspire, it's a very small group of patients. As of now, things could change, obviously, in the future, that it is really an option for treatment. So uh, besides, like, the CPAP and the BiPAP and all that type stuff, are there other things that individuals can do to try to help improve, like, their sleep hygiene or, their, or you know, maybe make their sleep apnea not quite as severe? besides the machines. And obviously we want to go with the machines first and everything like that, but just in a more of an, an addition to. Right. So obviously smoking puts people at higher risk. Um, people that are, you know, obese, morbidly obese, certainly losing weight, um, could help how much, how severe their apnea is. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously trying to keep a regular, you know, sleep schedule, but at the end of the day, if most sleep apneas, you're not going to get rid of especially ones that have to do with anatomical. Um, there's mm-hmm. just not much, you know, like I said, we used to have physicians tell you, oh, lose 30 pounds, you know, that would help. Maybe it would go away. But honestly, pretty much if you have sleep apnea, you're going to have sleep apnea. Now, like I said, you know, you could go from maybe moderate to mild, losing weight, exercising certainly helps as we know everything, right? Mental, physical, <laughs> all the above. Um, smoking, like I said, definitely puts you at higher risk. Um, Different medication use, again, um, certain sleep medicines, certain anti-anxiety medications, again, with that respiratory depression, when you use too many, you know, medications that can affect that. But ultimately, if you've been diagnosed with sleep apnea, you're likely going to have it forever. So just important. What's so important is just using that CPAP or BiPAP, whatever, you know, you get put on. It's so important to continue the use of it. Um, We see patients even with cognitive decline. They're starting to say, I'm, I'm just forgetful. I don't, I don't remember things. I feel like I'm getting confused and all that. And again, when you're dropping your oxygen every night, 
30, 40 times an hour. I mean, we, you know, it's, it's going to have that effect on your brain. Obviously your brain needs that time that you mentioned before that restorative sleep that, you know, you're not getting when you have apnea. So, you know, exercise, not smoking, watching the medications, but ultimately, you know, it's, if you have it, it's, it's treating it and, you know, really making sure you're compliant with your treatment. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, compliance with treatment is, is huge. It's huge in, in medicine in general is just compliance. And I think sometimes what happens is when we're diagnosed with something, it can feel like a burden and like, this has happened to me and it's frustrating. And now I have this thing that I have to put on. Um, but one thing I challenge my patients to do on a regular basis, you know, I treat lymphedema, which is it's chronic. It's not going to go away. It's, it's a managed diagnosis at this point, just like sleep apnea is. Um, but it's to reframe that thinking, right? So I could have something that is, um, that isn't manageable and that I don't have these tools. And before we didn't have as many tools as we do now. And so being, like, okay, like I've got this, but it's manageable and I can do it independently. I don't have to actually rely on anybody to manage it. I get educated on the diagnosis and what needs to happen. And then I feel better. And then my health feels better and I have the control over the situation. And so just kind of as, as much as you can reframing the thinking is super helpful because then you're, you get the physiologic benefit of the intervention, whether it's CPAP, BiPAP, um, or any of the other ways that it's, uh, managed. And so it's just, you know, it, it doesn't have to be this horrible thing. I know uh, multiple people, many of my patients have sleep apnea and they do so much better when they're compliant with their CPAP. And it's one of the things I ask about on a regular basis, especially if I'm seeing a decline in mood and irritability, but like their pain level has been improving. I'm like, well, remember when we talked about that past medical history and, and sleep apnea was on there. Uh, how's that, how's it going with that CPAP? And they're like, uh, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, right. So I, I'm, I'm taking that as a, maybe not as compliant as it could be. Well, okay. That's okay. I am love honesty, 100% love honesty. And I will never attack you in this building. We call it our safe zone. Um, we accept you as you are, as you come in. Um, but it's up to me to challenge your thinking sometimes. And it's up to me to say, Hey, let's point this out and let's come up with some strategies where you can be successful with this. And, uh, we try and just keep it as positive in that mind mind frame as uh, glass half full as possible. <laughs> I know, right. That's the podcast yeah. because that's how we live our lives. Um, uh, so yeah. So, um, anyway, so we're going to be, uh, wrapping it up and I just want to thank, uh, Erica so much for coming on. This was really helpful for me. Um, I, I I'm definitely more educated and hopefully this will help some, some of our listeners. Um, every episode, unless I forget, uh, we have a challenge. And so the challenge this week is um, think about, you know, again, sleep hygiene and everything that we've been talking about with that routine with sleep and how important that is. And really try and see if there's anything in there that could improve. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe just see like if you or somebody in your family or life or friends um, might have some of these symptoms that you might be able to raise some awareness. 
Um, and not that you're diagnosing anybody. I mean, they need to be referred <laughs> and a sleep study would have to actually happen in order for a diagnosis to happen, but, but use this knowledge to share it with others in case there is somebody that could benefit that had no idea that maybe why they're not falling asleep, um, is, is, could be sleep apnea or why they wake up and can't get back to sleep. Um, things that might be impairing their ability to recover from day to day. So um, thank you so much, Erica. And um, we will catch you all next week. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.